0: tuned for more rock and roll
1: well all right welcome to the it's only rock and roll podcast i'm don dimuccio and we've got a hell of a show today we're going to bring down the volume just a little bit don't worry the show continues to be a celebration of the rock era and all those who participated in that seven decade span from doo-wop to grunge it's all rock and roll to me and this episode marks another milestone for our little netcast our first guest who performed at 1969's woodstock festival We've had a few who attended the festival, but today we talk of one of the most beautifully unique voices of the rock era, who, on Friday, August 15th, 1969, at around 11 p.m., took the stage as a virtually unknown singer-songwriter in front of that massive 500,000-person audience. But after finishing her seven-song set, she left Woodstock a star. Today, the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast welcomes Melanie.
2: Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone, I'm going home, my baby. Wrote me a letter. I don't care how much money I gotta spend. Gotta get back to my baby again. All oh, lonely days are gone, I'm going home, my baby wrote me a letter oh, He wrote me a letter Said he couldn't live without me no more Oh, listen, Mr. Casey I gotta get back, gotta get back to my baby Don't you know you
1: honored to have today's guest on the show for many reasons, not the least of which being that I've been a fan of her work ever since I picked up an imported vinyl copy of Woodstock 2, which used to be hard to find back in the day, and I heard that voice, which one minute could be wistful and vulnerable and then suddenly turn powerfully emphatic, often within the same song. Well ahead of the singer-songwriter curve of the early 70s, she scored huge radio hits like Lay Down Candles in the Rain, what Have They Done to My Song Ma, and the number one worldwide smash hit, Brand New Key. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Melanie. Hello, Melanie. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi. Thank Here you. Here I am. Yay, finally. It's always so difficult
3: to follow my introduction. <laughs> I was like, Who are they talking about?
1: Well, definitely you. In the first order of business, I want to wish you a belated happy birthday.
3: Thank you. It's always Thank nice you. to meet
1: a fellow Aquarian. Oh right, right, definitely. Mine, mine was Tuesday, so.
3: Oh, so wait, Tuesday. Which when is Groundhog Day? Because that is my favorite. That's one of my favorite days.
1: So you got to explain to everybody. That's an inside joke between me and you. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've tried this what three, four times. Yeah, I false start.
3: Yeah, uh, this is like the fourth. <laughs> and then today I have there's drilling going on outside, so which is I perfect to, for radio broadcast. I had broadcast. to sneak into my closet. <laughs>
1: not touching that one. No. I also want to congratulate you on your nomination for a lifetime achievement award at this year's International Folk Music Festival. Something like Yeah, that.
3: society, I know. It's pretty amazing because uh, I've been uh, kind of hard to identify as far as genre. I'm not gender, genre. <laughs> no. I was just I almost said gender, you know. I I grew up in a my mother was a jazz singer, my mother, and my dad played the saxophone, although he was more of the um, businessman in the family. And my uncle was a union organizing, sang songs of labor. So I grew up with all this different kind of music, Billie Holiday, Peggy Lee, Woody Guthrie. Growing up there was just all kinds of music in my family. My grandmother was from Italy and she'd break into Venisu or something. Sure. <laughs> um and so all of that really entered into my musical self and I wrote songs when I was a little girl. They were all like imitations of torch songs that you know my mother would listen to here and there. I didn't know what I was saying, but you know I'd write <laughs> these songs. Then I'd write songs that sounded more folky and then when I was in high school, I discovered Edith Piaf mm-hmm. and Lada Lenya for three penny opera and yep. Pyrogeny and stuff like that. So I loved that. I loved these women, so I you know would learn those songs and then they became part of my. I was a sponge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, when I write a song, I mean, you could, I'm all over the map. I hear shades of
1: Buffy St. Marie in your voice. Am I off base?
3: No, well, she's a lot more quivery. But when I first started, I was driven by Billie Holiday.
0: Okay. Yep.
3: But yet, I also wished I had a beautiful, pure voice like Joan Baez, you know, so I was I was torn style-wise, you know, so I, I always think it's like you go out to imitate somebody and you get it wrong and that becomes your style.
1: There it is, yeah. You touched upon it a little bit, but what was your life growing up in Queens like? I was a very
3: introverted child, you know, and I remember, you know, my mom would say to people, oh, she's shy. She's shy, and I didn't really feel that that was accurate. But I couldn't articulate what it was that she got wrong. Um, I was thinking a lot. I guess every kid has a universe, you know, that they live in. And there's the world of the grown-ups, and then there's the world of your universe. And I grew up in New York, and you know, on a Saturday they'd open the door, and I'd go out, and I'd come back for lunch or something, and then I'd go out again, and come back for dinner. People weren't on top of you when you were a kid long ago because long ago, it sounds funny. It's me. I'm going to be that long. Right. You know, you could just let a kid out and people didn't do terrible things to kids. You know, it wasn't.
1: When the street lights came on, it was time to go home.
3: That's it. That's it. I know. And time to go home. I caught the tail end of that.
1: Just the tail end of the world went nuts.
3: Yeah. Well, I was always, I was a New Yorker and I thought I'll raise my kids in New York. But by the time I had children, you couldn't do that anymore. I know. You know.
1: Did I read somewhere that you started in show business at something like four years old? Well,
3: um, my mom knew I had an ability to learn songs. I could learn a song, like um, Unchained Melody. I learned it. I would sing it word for word and memorize it. And I thought I sounded like Al Hibbler. (laughs) 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 But my mom was impressed. And she thought that I might be the next Shirley Temple. And she took me for tap dancing lessons. That wasn't my thing, really, (laughs) dancing. You know, then she took me to Jimmy the Greek who had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And for a a small amount of money, she would make these recordings of me singing Al Hibbler songs and Torch songs with Julie London, Cry Me a River. (laughs) She entered a contest. Something like Live Like a Millionaire, but I don't think that was the name of it. But it was a contest that was for either your brother and sister, or mother and father, or child and mother, child and father. You know, you had to be related in some way. So she thought we should do this, and I sang uh, Give Me a Little Kiss, and she sang Exactly Like You. And we were, I think, second runner-up. And what I won was a Tiny Tears doll. And this was one of the first dolls that did something by itself. Yeah. Well, not exactly by itself. Yeah. You fed it water right, in right. a bottle, and then it peed in a diaper, It's was, just, like, really exciting, you know? Charming. This is just, like, the new thing. This yeah. Is a cutting-edge doll, you know? <laughs> and um, I probably never would have gotten one from my mom, but I won it. And I this is great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So all I had to do is sing a song and look what I got. (laughs) I learned how to play a baritone ukulele when I was little. I remember I was in a school show and My mom was sitting in the audience and I was playing and I guess one of my strings went out of tune and I could play the thing but I couldn't tune it. So I spotted my mother in the audience and I stopped playing abruptly and walked over to my mother to tune the ukulele and she was horrified, you know, like, oh my God, and everybody was laughing and I provided a little comic relief at that point. I think that's probably what I really enjoy. I love making people laugh. You know, I think it's one of the the things about being a performer. And When I first started out, I shied away from letting that part of me come out because, well, that was just not done. The lead girl in the, the movie was never the funny one. It was just the fat girlfriend who was funny. The lead was, you know, and I was the lead. I was, you know, a girl who played the guitar and sang, and I wanted people to understand that. So I would inhibit myself, you know, I was inhibited from becoming funny. But I think that was one of the, f- I loved when people laughed. I thought that was the best.
1: And you can hear a lot of that in your songs too. You didn't take yourself all too seriously like some people did. You know, you had levity in it. Right, So, right. like Animal Crackers, for example. Right.
3: The- I wasn't afraid to express that in songs. Right. But as far as like in between stage patter. I would sort of slap myself, say, "Don't do that! (laughs) Don't don't say that!" But now i I say everything. I can be funny, sure, (laughs) if I want.
1: Was it insecurity that held you back? Do you think, or
3: no? It was just the way it was. Girls weren't funny.
1: Really, you think girls
3: weren't supposed to be funny? No, No. of course not. Not, not in when I was growing up. We were only there to laugh at guys' jokes.
1: Oh, (laughs) jeez.
3: You know, and yeah. then feels insecure with a funny woman. You know, they we, they might be laughing at them.
2: Oh, eat your animal crackers, cause my mother told me so long ago. If you eat. Children in Europe won't starve anymore. Ha ha, 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 ha. Oh, once I went on a diet. A carbohydrate diet ain't nice. Cause you can't eat animal crackers. So I'm gonna stay a fatty for all of my life. Ha, 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 ha. I think that fatties are nice, yeah I love eating ice cream, chocolate, vanilla, and butter pecan, but I best love animal crackers, cause I love helping my fellow man, yeah I really do Did you the year of Alice's restaurant. I eat at Alice's restaurant year after year. She makes an animal cracker pizza and she gives animal crackers out free with the beer. Oh, let's give Alice a great big cheer. She knows the age of the animal cracker is here. Oh, animal crackers are in this year.
1: Let me ask you what was your first professional gig are you from massachusetts i'm from rhode island
3: i got that first
1: is it the bad accent
3: it's no, noise just that little bit i detected it okay new england okay <laughs> new england, yes okay what was the question
1: now that you've insulted me <laughs> professional. No,
3: it's, it's nice i like accents
1: thank you well i'm trying to get a picture of the early folk club scenes. I'm sure you did throughout Greenwich Village and Or am I wrong?
3: No, you know, I would go up to New York with my mother. She sang in jazz clubs, and she sang uh, at the Blue Note. She would sit in with different, she was just, she loved music. She loved listening to jazz. She she just did that on weekends. So I would go up with her. I would bring my guitar, because then I had graduated from playing a baritone ukulele, which I identified as something that Arthur Godfrey played. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was not cool. The ukulele has become cool, but it wasn't cool when I was growing up, so I wanted to play a guitar, and I finally got my first guitar and learned a couple of chords and started writing songs for myself to sing on a guitar, and I'd go to the village. I'd sit in Washington Square, and I'd just start strumming and sing. It's amazing because here I am, this totally shy, introvert person, and I would be able to do that there was no one there and then all of a sudden there'd be a little crowd and what you're supposed to do is pass the hat right because you didn't have a case because a case was something only music students from juilliard had (laughs) the um the coolness factor was you just strapped the guitar over your back and just wore the guitar so that was me in the village I would sing for a while, and as soon as it came to the point where, you know, I stopped, I would just race off. (laughs) I just never got to the point of passing the hat, even in clubs. But as much as I played in the village that way, I was never discovered. Nobody ever, you know, found me in the village. That all happened after I went to acting school.
1: Funny you say that, because I heard that you auditioned for Fiddler on the Roof. That was way after, way, way after. Oh, that was after.
3: Yeah, yeah. After I had graduated from uh, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, there was, um, the auditioning part was terrifying. So, you know, I'd read the trade papers, and they wanted a girl to play this or a girl to play that. I did audition for Fiddler on the Roof. And um, I got on the stage... And um, I heard somebody laughing at me because I, I went to the audition with my braids and a peasant dress mm-hmm. and uh, a little kerchief uh, over my hair. And I heard giggling from the darkness of whoever they were auditioning me and i, I terrified me that they were laughing at me but i know happened to notice that all the girls who were auditioning there was a certain thing that you did you wore basically basic black and pearls you know with your hair coiffed yeah and here I was <laughs> trying to be the part. I thought, well, that's what they want, right? So they might as well get to see the person. And I dressed like that anyway. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll fit right in. But I, I was laughed at. That's ridiculous.
1: Because, no, Because that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to show, you know, if you can show up in, in character...
3: Well, I I guess now it's different. But then there was a certain decorum, you know, a certain way of doing it. So you were
1: of your time on that, too?
3: Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But the part that I auditioned for that led to me meeting Peter, my husband and producer, was um, they wanted someone to play Barbara Allen in Dark of the Moon. Dark of the Moon was this very esoteric play about a witch boy on the mountain, and he comes down and finds Barbara Allen, and, and the thing was with me, when I read that they wanted a girl who played the guitar and sang, this was before that, you know, this was before girls played guitar it was still guys played guitar and girls didn't yeah you know so um i i they want a girl who plays the guitar and and barbara Allen, i know the whole song you know all 28 verses so um <laughs> that was like a sign that they want me. (laughs) So I found uh, where they were doing the audition. I was living at my parents' house in New Jersey, and I took a train in. And I realized when I got to 1619 Broadway, it was the Brill Building, and I didn't have the room number. I just knew it was being put on by the, I don't know, Actors, Directors Guild of New York or something. And I stood there in horror because I knew I was going to be late if I didn't find this building. I looked up at the skyscraper and there was at that time a doorman it was a fancy building, you know, and and there was a doorman. He was wearing epaulets, you know, and Mm -hmm. he would greet people as they walked in. Hello, Mrs. So-and-so. Have a nice day, Mr. So-and-so. And And then under his breath, he would mutter little curses.
0: You know,
3: (laughs) know, I guess he had kind of like a Tourette syndrome or something. (laughs) And and I watched him doing this because I wanted to walk up to him and ask him, but it was kind of, frightening, you know, to watch him do this. And I finally got the nerve up because I realized if I don't get in there now, it's not going to happen. So I walked up to him. I asked him, do you know where they're doing the audition for Dark of the Moon? And it was like one of those moments at the twilight zone or something. It seemed like everything went very quiet. Yeah. And he looked at me in the eyeballs and said, go to room 511. They're always doing weird things there. Wow. And really, I swear, it was like this, okay. (laughs) So so I went up to 511 and it was the office of Hugo and Luigi who had produced Elvis or wrote songs for Elvis and and Sam Cooke and... Uh, oh God! I, all these really famous people, but I never—I didn't know what a music publisher was. I didn't know who they were, you right. know, Hugo and Luigi. Um, and so the front office is institution green-gray walls and uh, metal filing cabinets and. And I walked in and I said, are you doing the audition for Dark of the Moon? And she looked at me like I was from another planet, you know. And, no, no, like go away. <laughs> I said, oh, no, oh, no, you don't understand. I have to find this building, the, this office, because I'm auditioning for Dark of the Moon. It's really important. And and she said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And And so she started looking at the building directory and found the group of people who were putting on this audition and she gave me the room number and I'm thanking her. In the meantime, Hugo and Luigi had walked in and were kind of watching the scene unfold. And they said, What did she want an audition? And Joyce, the secretary, said, No, she was lost and she couldn't and he said, No, no, wait. Yeah, you wanna you wanna come back and audition for us? And I, I looked, I said, I don't know, yeah, sure. <laughs> Who are you? But so I, Joyce set me up for an audition on the next Thursday, and I got the part and I went back to thank Joyce, and she told me I have an audition set for next Thursday with Hugo and Luigi. I thought, oh, okay, Um, that's nice, all right, whatever. (laughs) And um, so I came back, and they brought me into the inner sanctum of where they really worked, and it was Gold-plated everything. It was like the inside of a Castro convertible showroom, you know, with gilt <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> everything and Louis XIV facing desks, and they they were facing each other. And I was had a, a seat in front of the two desks that were facing each other. And they said, "Oh, so you write songs? Oh, sing us something you write." And I just, you know sang some songs that i wrote and i could tell you know they're looking at each other like oh that's pretty weird you know and um so he said well you know uh, we just hired a a producer to run our production company because we're working on a broadway show and we don't have time to do that but i'll let him meet you and you know see how that goes so i went back after another few days and Met Peter Shikarik, Mm. who had been hired to run their production company, and he was producing a group called the Marshmallows. It was the psychedelic era, you know. Yeah. And so he had a song that he had produced that was a bubbling 100 or something, you know, how things bubbled. Yeah. They were bubbling. Yeah. And he was um, working on some stuff like that. But again, it wasn't impressing me because I was an actress, you know. I mean, I'm going to be Barbara Ellen in Dark of the Moon, and this is all just fun and games, whatever this is, you know. Right. But Peter, when he heard me singing, I could tell he was truly impressed. And in the middle of the song, he jumped up and went into their office and I could hear him say, no, you got gonna... And, and he was all excited. And so he had them sign me to Hugo and Luigi Publishing and um, well, the rest is just kind of history. We got married. I had a hit record, you know.
1: <laughs> well, but I mean, I'm still stuck on that. That doorman sent you to the wrong place. I
3: know. And I know. It how, really was. It's, it's like, wow. it was like that movie moment, you know, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, go to 5-11. They're always doing weird things there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Weird have things like meeting your future husband right. which's gonna help you in a career and you're gonna have children with I mean that's cosmic, man. If you don't believe in the whole cosmic thing, I don't I know. know what to tell you.
3: I know, totally. It, it really is the truth. It's I had never had any music thing that happened. I I thought to be a singer you had to be very beautiful and svelte, you know, and know how to move, you know,
1: and, and we I on those and, things.
3: No, but I wasn't in that way, you know, like I I was clunky, I wasn't graceful, and I certainly didn't feel at all pretty, not pretty enough to be a singer, so I always counted myself out of that, and I didn't know that you could try to be a singer. It was before parents thought that was a good idea. Oh, yeah. You know, it was way before. Now, you know, of course, yeah. Now they drag the kid. This is the next Janis Joplin. (laughs) Here's the next Jimi Hendrix. And right, (laughs) so they groom these people. You know, parents have money. Of course, he could be a star. And it's true. (laughs) If you if you have enough money, your kid could be a star. Sure.
1: Now you were initially signed to Columbia Records in '67.
3: Yes, Peter went to Columbia Records. Um, Hugo and Luigi were the publishers. And at that point, you know, I thought a publisher was somebody who printed sheet music. I didn't know anything about what they do, what they get, what they have.
1: And you recorded Beautiful People.
3: Yes, beautiful people. And Peter, he was one of these people who took amazing risks and gambles. And he had produced the marshmallows for CBS, so he got a budget to do a session with the marshmallows. (laughs) My name started with M so it kind of was true (laughs) but uh, he booked a studio for me to do a song with um, an arranger and an orchestra and it was supposed to be a marshmallow session but it was a Melanie session and I didn't know this you know I just thought Wow, recording was pretty impressive. Mm. So, um, we went in with this orchestra and I sang in a vocal booth. It was a time when engineers wore white lab coats.
1: Oh, yeah. It's
3: wild, you know? Yeah. I mean. <laughs> it was like science behind <laughs> that black <laughs> glass thing and they would be very you know stern looking guys with glasses and white lab coats and there i was with an orchestra and singing beautiful people and one other song that i had written and beautiful people was scheduled to go out as a single but it was just at that time as well where I mean, I was signed to CBS when John Hammond was uh, the head of A&R. Right. And then John Hammond left, and in comes the lawyers. Yeah. This was the beginning of lawyers running record companies, you know. And sure. And this particular lawyer, <laughs> uh, Clive Davis, he just did not get me at all (laughs) not at all and peter again when he signed this deal he had an escape clause so i'm sure clive davis didn't realize this and he thought that they had me yeah after we recorded beautiful people and it was kind of a turntable hit because the record companies didn't promote it clive davis didn't get it they have a song by Kenny O'Dell called Beautiful People. Mm. And they actually made me call my song, My Beautiful People. I
1: saw that. That's, <laughs>
3: <yeah>. <laughs> because uh, Kenny O'Dell was going climbing the charts with Beautiful People. So I couldn't have a song called Beautiful People. It had to be My Beautiful People.
1: I thought they just I, printed it wrong.
3: No, no, they changed it.
1: They changed
3: it. Unbeknownst to me. Yeah, because, this
1: strike one, by the way. That's never a good sign, you know? No.
2: You live in the same world as I do, but somehow I never noticed you before today. I'm ashamed to say, beautiful people, we share the same back door and it isn't right, we never met before, but then we may never meet again. If I weren't afraid it'd laugh at me, I would run and take all of your hands in, I'd gather in. Never be alone cause He'll always be someone With the same button on As you Include him in everything you do Beautiful people
1: You ride
2: the same subway As I do every morning Gotta tell you something We got so much in common I go the same direction that you do So if you take care of me Maybe I'll take care of you Beautiful people You look like friends of mine, and it's about time that someone said it here and now. I make a vow that sometimes, somehow, As you include him in everything you do He may be sitting right next to you He may be a beautiful people too And if you take care of him, well Then maybe he'll take care of you Cause all of the beautiful people do And all the beautiful people too
3: When I met Clive Davis, I was, you know, thinking he wanted to talk to me about future plans and recording an album because I had all these songs, you know, I had written songs since I was four. (laughs) At least 20 of them were really good songs. So I don't know why I was in that office by myself without Peter. Maybe Clive Davis asked for me to be by myself. I don't know. He's talking to me, and I, I said, well, you know, I've got all these songs. I can't wait to get in to do them, and Peter and I, and we're going to do this and that. And he said, so you want to record an album? And I went, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah. what makes you think you're qualified to record an album? Now, right away, I'm, I'm starting to cry, right? <laughs> what, um, so I said, well, I, I didn't think I was auditioning. You know, I thought, yeah. I didn't think I had to convince this guy. Yeah. I just thought I was going to tell him, you know, the next step, you know. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, when I started to cry, he said, we've just signed Michelle Lee, Michelle Lee has just been signed to do the Colgate toothpaste commercial. Now, I didn't know what he was talking. It was like a different language.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, I didn't even know what, what, what do you mean? And now I'm like totally intimidated and crying. And he said, you have the audacity to cry in the office of the president of CBS records. And uh-huh. at that point I got up and I ran out of the office and I, I saw Peter and he said, Peter, he's horrible. Like we have, we can't be here. I don't think he wants to to do an album. And and so Peter, at that moment, got up and went to Buddha Records and got me out of CBS. And I think that was my first mistake. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 i told i was i talked about it in interviews and somebody said i think you'd better stop talking about clive davis
1: oh maybe at the time yeah sure
3: he was god and and he had powerful friends and powerful places it really was the beginning of the end of music in the
1: music industry i, I know nothing personal about him but i i never liked him <laughs> that story certainly solidifies that feeling
3: Yeah. uh, Recently, Kelly Clarkson did this entire interview, and she talked about him making her cry. And I thought, good for you, Kelly. (laughs) What it was is he is very intimidating. He surrounded himself with talented people. Yeah. But what people don't realize there's a politic in everything, right? In every business, there's who you know and power and what's bought and what's sold and what's underlying. I mean, it was right at the point when the Kinney parking lot people (laughs) started to become involved in the music business and Clive Davis and lawyers started heading up record companies and... I didn't know what was going on, you know. I knew people I liked and I didn't like. I liked John Hammond. I didn't, I didn't like Clive Davis.
1: You know, or somebody like Ahmed Erdogan. He understood music.
3: Oh yeah, he yeah. was definitely a music guy. Right,
1: right. But right, I right.
3: think even Ahmed was being challenged, and because he signed me, and after photograph was released, he went to Turkey for something family related, yep. and. I was in the hands of Tunj. I don't know. I don't know what his first or last name was, but it was Tunj. And again, Tunj wasn't about the next album, even though Photograph was incredible. Up until that point, I would say it was the best album I had ever done. And he was really behind it. Amit was really behind it. In fact, he was in the studio with us. We had different jazz guys on the album. It was just such a fun album to make. You know, that the, the best albums are fun. Sure. Because if, if you're not having fun as a musician, it usually doesn't come out so good. Of course. It was just a magic studio experience, and um, I actually named the group Toto. Really? Because they were looking for a name and David Page had never been a singer, but he wanted to be, you know, and he had a group and I was, had a song called Toto, stop your barking. Cause we're not in Kansas no more. Uh-huh. So it was a fun album and, and it was so good. It was such a great album. And they released it. John Rockwell in the New York Times said if, if there's one album you should have, it's Melanie's photograph. I thought this was like a new beginning for me because uh, up until that point, I don't think I was really taken very seriously by the underground press. And again, there was a politics going on. They were also involved with the Kinney parking lot people and Clive Davis and all of this sort of incestuous stuff going on that I I knew nothing about or nor did Peter. We were just making music, you know. We wanted the people to like it. That was the motivation. When people liked it, you figured you're okay. You know, you're doing good. But that wasn't exactly what was going on. uh the photograph album they've shelved it basically and i've been told there was an agenda going on they basically signed me to keep me off the streets it was all you know disco you yeah. know all that cocaine yeah. Yeah. it was the drug of choice oh, yeah. you know so and there were, were things going on behind the scenes that people have no idea why you hear of somebody and why you don't Chris Novoselic said in an interview, because um, people said, I heard you really like Melanie. He said, yeah. Then he was talking about me. And he said, yeah, she's been carefully airbrushed out of history. I think that's pretty amazing. You know, PR is everything. And history is told by the winners.
1: I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the great Woodstock Festival. But the first time last year, they finally released every second that was recorded of the whole festival. People got to hear your entire set right what a beautiful thing it was i mean here you are you're 22 years old i know you had some big hits in europe and in the netherlands but would it be safe to say that american audiences weren't used to you at that point
3: they didn't know who i was i was relatively unknown i was maybe an industry buzz because you know i had done like showcases in my hotel room for record men yeah (laughs) rack jobbers you know there there was a certain kind of cool niche of people that peter knew and and these guys and they'd come into the hotel room and in i'd have a bedroom attached to um living room suite kind of thing and we would have wine and cheese and i would sing songs and then they would smoke cigars and i'd leave the room (laughs) So, yeah, but that was it. I was an industry buzz. Yeah. And I would say maybe a percent of that audience maybe heard me before. They certainly didn't connect me with a name. There was only one DJ in New York had played Beautiful People. That was the time when a DJ could play anything he liked. Right. And Roscoe played Beautiful People. And he called me Malani. Malani. So if anyone had heard that song, it would have been because they were listening to WNEW-FM. So it became what they call a turntable hit.
1: And here you are, sandwiched between Ravi Shankar's set and Awa Guthrie's set.
3: I don't know who followed me because I was absolutely flying off that stage. Oh, yeah. But um, but I do do know I followed Ravi Shankar. And I think the Incredible String Band was supposed to be in the slot where I was put. And they refused because of fear of electrocution, which is sensible. But I didn't have that kind of sense. So.
1: <laughs> have you heard the, the entire release that came out? No, on? no. Oh, it's heard. awesome because you can actually hear, I think it's Chipmunk talking and saying, you know, they can't come on now. Let's get Melanie, pull Melanie. You know, you can hear all the. <gasps> really? Oh, Yes.
3: Oh my God, no, no, it's, I didn't have any idea.
1: The best part is isn't the music as much as the, the announcements and the them talking before they made the announcements. We've got to say this, we've got to do that. It's really amazing. It, it, I mean, it's like, I think 36 hours of material. It's really interesting. Yeah,
3: that's incredible. Yeah. You know, I've never made any money from, from anything to do with Woodstock. It's like... Um,
1: Not even the, the no, second...
3: No, nothing. Nothing at all. I don't know how that happens. I but know. When Peter first passed away, and there was this huge commercial that used my song and my performance um, for HP... I contacted them because I I didn't know I I didn't know how I was going to live. You know, I didn't know anything. I didn't, he took care of all the business stuff. I didn't even have a bank account. No. You know, so I called HP and they said, "Oh no, no, it's the so and so gets paid. It's quartet music." So I never heard of them. I said, "What about like writers' royalties?" I said, "No, you, you don't get anything." Mm-hmm.
2: Look what they done to my song, ma, look what they done to my song, well it's the only thing that I could do half right and it's turning out all wrong, ma, look what they done to my song, Look what they done to my brain, ma, look what they done to my brain. Well, they picked it like a chicken bone and I think I'm half insane, ma, look what they done to my soul. I wish I could find a good book to live in Wish I could find a good book Well if I could find a real good book I'd never have to come out and look at What they've done to my soul Buy in tears, I'll be rich someday, ma, look what they done to my son, ils ont changé ma chanson, ma, ils ont changé ma chanson, c'est le seul show Que je peux faire Et ce n'est pas bon Ils ont changé ma chanson Look what they done To my son Look what they done To my son Well they tied it up In a plastic bag Turned it upside down, ah. look what they done to my song Ils ont changé ma chanson, ah. Chanson. Look what they done to my song. what they done to my soul. It's the only thing I could do all right, and they turn it upside down oh, mama, look what they done
1: to my son. How soon after Woodstock did you write and record Lay Down?
3: I wrote that as I was leaving Woodstock. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments. I, I I, had been in such complete terror. The whole day, I was um, the girl. <laughs> no, I was the girl. And um, after Richie Havens went on, which was morning, I descended the field on a helicopter. I had to leave my mother <laughs> at the entrance of the helicopter because they said, you know, who's she? I didn't even have the sense to say, you know, she's my roadie, (laughs) you know, this is my mother. Oh, sorry, mom, no moms, sorry, only musicians and bands and stuff. So I'm on the helicopter by myself. I say goodbye to my mother, and that was that. I descended the field, and they led me to a little tent with a dirt floor and a box, and that's where I spent the day. And I figured I'm going to be on next. I said, next, you know, you're on next. After Richie Havens, because he was in his 40th minute of <laughs> a frenzied freedom, freedom. And uh, I could feel it. You know, I could feel it. I, oh, my. Oh, my. What am I going to do? And I didn't have a conga player. <laughs> I was just me. Right. And I'm armed with three chords, you know. And nobody heard of me. You know, I mean... Richie had albums and he was like the Pope of Greenwich Village, you know. Right. Uh, and here I, 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 was unknown. I mean, relatively to that audience. Um, maybe if you sang them a few lines of beautiful people, uh, they might have heard the song, but they didn't connect it with a face right. or, uh, there was nothing. And, and so I, I I'm thinking, I, You know, people are going to yell at me or throw things at me or something. (laughs) And um, surely this was the end of my life. If I had to go on that stage, it was over. But I braced myself. I was going to go on because I figured I landed in the helicopter. I'll go on, and people will do what they will. And it was bright, sunny daylight, so it was okay. Um, it, It it. it was much more intimidating as it got later and later and the lights were on and there were, you know, big stars playing and, uh, nobody had ever heard of me. I said that over and over, but that's a big deal. You know, it is one thing to go in front of people that are predisposed to thinking you're great, but you know, to go on as an unproven, unknown, anything and uh, have to do it in of 500,000 people yeah. for the first
1: time. <laughs> he introduces you as a fresh new face or something like that. Really? Let's welcome a special guest, a very nice young lady, a new face. Let's welcome Melanie. While well,
0: walking
2: through life, I would never fall If I could be close To it all and all If I could be close To it all If I had my dream It would not fall down If I could live high On the ground The sound of high Is a good one To many around When they wanna be close To it all And I wanna be close to it all And all I
1: gotta be close to it all You're right, they didn't know you, but boy, by the end of your set, you had them.
3: I know, that is the incredible thing. I'm really fond of saying that I went on that stage an unknown person and walked off the stage a celebrity.
1: And who else can say that, really?
3: No, because everybody was known.
1: I read somewhere they said, well, there was three women at Woodstock who really took the show. But first of all, Janis Joplin had mega success at that point. Oh, and my a, God. And, and a full and band a behind Full it. out band. Right. I know. Joan Baez, okay. She just had the guitar, but she was Joan Baez. Right, I mean, right. predates Dylan and all. She
3: had, yeah. She had like five albums out by that time.
1: You had nothing but talent. That's it. There you was
3: know, nothing. There was no photos of me on magazines. There was it. nothing. The newspaper I had not been on any television show. There was nothing.
1: You played six great songs, and that's all you needed.
3: You know, the funny thing is I didn't even know that I had played a set. I remembered singing Birthday of the Sun. Right. And, and I had just written that song. That's the crazy thing, too. Imagine doing a festival of that magnitude and pulling out a song I just wrote that nobody ever heard. <laughs>
1: like, and it had a lot of power behind it, a lot of power.
3: really crazy. You know, when you listen to that, you realize that that is not a folk song. No, <laughs> that's, no. That's, that's a full out, you know, I heard in my head what that song was. You right. know, that that was... Kurt vile you know that yeah, right. was uh cabaret i don't know you know it was, but i i again musically i'm all over the place
1: you know i um maybe six months ago i picked up an lp copy of uh candles in the rain that's a masterpiece it really is and 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 i heard the long unedited version of the song which i hadn't heard up at that point with the spoken word intro yeah yeah it's such a seminal album what are your memories of recording that
3: Oh, God. It was amazing. You know, the the uh, whole thing was leading up to that was that when I played the song to Peter, I said, wouldn't it be great because I'm on Buddha Records. Maybe we could get this to the Edwin Hawkins singers. Maybe they could sing that chorus with me, you know, the anthemic lay down part. And he he got that look in his eye. You know, he was going to be determined to do that. Uh, He was terrible about this. He would call someone and and say, hey, Melanie, so-and-so wants to talk to you. (laughs) Again, you know when you're a shy person, that is like the worst possible thing a person could do to you. (laughs) uh, Okay, who is this? Uh, This is Edwin Hawkins. He really wants to talk to you. And so I I got on the phone, hi. He said, well... Peter tells me you have a song that you'd like us to do. Does it have Jesus in it? I went, well, not exactly, no. Uh, Does it have the Lord? mm, Not by name, no. Mm. Um, And... I, But I was wanting to, you know, somehow convince him. So I thought it was like, but it's really very much God is there. God's in the song. And he listened for a second, Well, but I wasn't very good at pitching, you know. So uh, he said, I'm sorry, you know. We really only do religious music, and that's that. So I said, okay, well, thank you. And uh, I was gracious, he was gracious, and that was that. Well, sometime later, a couple of weeks later, we were recording in um, Freddie Cotera's studio in, uh, I guess it was San Francisco or Oakland or something, and lo and behold, the Edwin Hawkins singers were rehearsing down the street at a high school gym, and Peter said, oh, Edwin Hawkins really wants to hear the song. I said, really? He said, no. He said, yeah, no, no, but he really wants to hear the song. And so we went down, and I have my guitar strapped to my back. <laughs> I opened the door of the gymnasium, and there's an entire chorus, you know, singing away. And um, as soon as they see us, little by little, they stop singing. And Edward Hawkins looks back, and as we walk down the aisle, um, I realize that Peter made this up <laughs> 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 about Edwin Ock is really wanting to hear this song. So, um, Peter was the PT Barnum of, of music business. You know, he was shameless and he, he got me into things that I never would have gotten into without him.
1: You That's know? not your personality at all. To just kind of not push your all. way f- forward. No, and, no. <laughs> no. And you need no. that. You need that. You
3: do. You That's really it. do. So, um, Peter, just sing the song, Melanie, he sing the song. And oh, yeah, like, oh, my God, you know, 46 big-voiced black people and Edwin Hawkins and me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, so I started singing, and um, Edwin Hawkins pulls Peter aside and he's talking, and Peter's gesturing, and I'm singing for my life, you know, singing for my life. I was uh, so embarrassed that I knew that it would be the right thing. If these voices were on this song, it would be the right thing. Right. So uh, that is what drove me, you know. So I kept singing. By the time I did the chorus, the second time, I heard some people in the choir singing. And then as I kept going, they started, they joined me. And I, I looked over and Edwin Hawkins threw up his hands and said, oh, Okay, what can you do? Yeah, that's awesome. So the rest is, you know, we went to the studio and um, we recorded in one take. And the reason it was so long is because Peter jumped out of the recording booth and kept doing that, the universal sign for keep going, you know, with the finger in the air. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then nobody wanted to stop anyway. You know, it's just like this incredible momentum. And... Oh, my God. I don't think ever, ever have I experienced anything like this in the studio. The amazing energy and life that this song took on, it was spiritual and it was rousing. And I knew that this was going to be heard. Ooh.
2: Little sisters of the sun, lit candles in the rain. Fed the world on oats and raisins, candles in the rain. Lit the fire to the soul, who never knew its friend. Maya Baba lives again, candles in the rain. To be there was to remember, so lay it down again, oh lay it down, lay it down, lay it down again. Men can live as brothers, candles in the rain.
1: You started your own record label. Yes. What was the issue with Buddha?
3: Well, you know that um, I was getting the idea that Buddha Records was considered a bubble gum label with chewy, chewy, juicy, yeah. juicy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so here I am, wanting to be considered relevant. Some, you know, with some kind of something to say that that was a little more important than uh, yummy yummy goody goody and so Buddha Records was not being considered the coolness label you know so not only did I X myself out of the political arena of CBS now I'm on Buddha Records of course I'm made to look ridiculous they did an interview with me and they you know cut out every other word and made me sound totally stupid that's not cool no no it was horrible. And when Candles in the Rain came out, they didn't even credit me with writing the song. What? Yeah. And they said when the Edwin Hawkins singers come in, they're great. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. When Melanie's voice comes in, it's like a nail scratching against chalkboard. Oh, who wrote that? The reviewer at the Rolling Stone.
1: <laughs> uh.
3: You know, people have gotten fired from the Rolling Stone for writing too positive a review. Yeah. But I was definitely not the girl that they were promoting at the time. I was yeah. definitely not the coolness factor. In fact, they almost waged a, an attack. <laughs> no, I mean, just I'm merciless.
1: You weren't the yeah. only one, that's for sure. If you weren't in that click with them. Yeah. They, they didn't want to hear it.
3: No, no. It was definitely the click. Yes. There's so much behind that people don't know. It's just amazing.
1: You had that neighborhood records. And right out of the gate, you score
3: the biggest uh, hit. I know. And that in itself flew directly in the faces of the entire record industry at that time. Here I was. I mean, nobody had an independent label. The first and only group that ever, ever did that was the Beatles. And they had a big legal team behind them. Here I was, you know, flying in the face of the industry. Clive Davis never forgave me for finding this escape clause. (laughs) I
0: mean,
3: he thought he had me, definitely. But that was the end of that. To this day, my biggest audience has been, uh, other than like young kids, I call them born-again hippies, you know, who discovering the Woodstock album and asking me to sing songs like Birthday of the Sun, which uh, was this one-off song that I'm not even sure I ever recorded it for real yeah you did i did
1: i was gonna Go say I, li- I actually like the um the live version better
3: i'm sure because it was this massive production probably you know
1: yeah it was very different it wasn't just you and your guitar no well i gotta ask you the inevitable question probably for the one millionth time i want you to set the record straight brand new key what was the oh, inspiration yeah. behind it? <laughs> well,
3: this is quite a story, really. It has so little to do with the meaning of the song. I love collecting antiques. I used to go to flea markets at four in the morning and pretend I was an antique dealer and I'd ask for the dealer's price. And there was a, a place called English Town in New Jersey and it was a really big flea market and people would bring their, then it was all old stuff. It wasn't, um you know, cheap things from different parts of the world. It was cheap stuff that belonged to people and they'd would take them out and sell sell it. So that was what I loved to do. So I had been on a fast previous because I was a vegetarian. I would say a little bit humorless, militant vegetarian. I knew everything bad about what it was to eat meat you know, what they do the animals, what, do, how to live, and what it does to the environment and what it does to this. And at Thanksgiving, I would say, I don't eat carcass. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh,
0: but, one of those,
3: huh? Eh? One of those, yeah. You know? But it was because I had come home from Paris, and the meat there is very vivid. It hangs in butcher windows, the animal. You know, you, you look up and it was, you know, a whole lamb yeah, I was going to say the yeah. whole
1: pig. Or the whole, they had yeah, the whole yeah,
3: pig, yeah, the yeah. lamb, the half a cow, you know. It's like, oh, my God, you know. And I hadn't been a vegetarian before I went to Paris, you know, so I became a vegetarian, a very, very strict vegetarian. All right. So, uh, But I wasn't doing well physically. I, I kept getting sick really sick. So I I went to this Dr. Bernard Jensen, who is considered the father of iridology in America, which is they read the little dots in your iris yep. and can figure out like, where yep. your weak spots are and stuff. So Again, I was supposed to do Carnegie Hall. This was a you know pretty big deal, and I was kept getting sick and uh, so I went out to Bernard Jensen's Health Ranch. I talked to him, and I told him I was a vegetarian and he said, "That's great. Okay, he was a vegetarian. You know, it was all really good. But he put me on a fast, a cleanse. You know, so after 27 days of fasting on nothing but distilled water, he had a talk with me. He said, Melanie, I think it's time to stop fasting." I said, "No, no, <laughs> I'm about to see God. You know that, and really, I was."
1: Hallucinating.
3: Hallucinating, exactly. I was <laughs> leaving my body. Yeah. No nerves. I was leaving my body. He said, This is how you'll break the fast. And um, so I'm leaving the ranch and I'm going off to do Carnegie Hall. And he said, Your perfect diet is going to occur to you. He suggested that I eat meat at least two times a week. I was horrified. I can't eat meat. It's poor, you know, it's toxic and blah. blah, blah. And he said, "You know, there are some people who are a little more high strung, <laughs> you know, and, and a little flighty." And he said, "You need animal substance to ground you a little bit." So I took that into consideration, but I didn't actually think I would ever eat meat anyway. I was coming home from the flea market, and I was hungry. And I always traveled with a little guitar. And we were going back past a McDonald's and I smelled this I don't know, this aroma, this scent, this it brought back all these memories of things and I let's go to McDonald's and you know, I mean that's so crazy, you know, to have broken a fast a week earlier and be thinking about eating McDonald's but I did, I got the whole works, the fiberglass <laughs> milkshakes, the fries and rancid oil and the, the burger that was made of earth mm, <laughs> whatever I and I, I ate it, I ate it I ate the whole thing and I no sooner finished the last bite of hamburger when that song just kind of rattled around, you know I've got a brand new pair of roller skates, and when I was thinking of my roller skating when I was little, and su- I went down suicide hill and lost my tooth,
0: and
3: yeah. <laughs> um, my dad holding the back of the bicycle, you know, saying, "Are you holding on, Dad?" "Yep, I'm holding on." Are "You holding on?" And his voice is getting further from me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. at the minute they know, you know, you know that they're not holding on, I fell. <laughs> no.
1: But um so it's the most innocent.
3: It of- was totally innocent. But I mean I I think you know there are two levels of writing. What you think you know you're saying and what you're saying.
1: So you think on some level.
3: I think on some level I must have known. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was totally innocent. It was really I mean it, it it shocked me when people would say, "Oh, there's sexual innuendos in that" and uh Social connotation. Oh, the other one was that it was a, a drug song and the key was short for Kilo.
1: They, they do that with everything. Then
3: I, I it, that was, it was brutal, true. you know. Yeah. They read all kinds of things into lyrics. But uh, even with all that, you know, reading stuff into lyrics, I still wasn't considered cool.
2: I wrote My bicycle passed your window last night than follow me.
1: a sign of the strange times we're kind of finding ourselves in. You did an online virtual concert. Do you think that after the pandemic is eradicated, the performers will be leaning more toward the online thing?
3: oh god you know on one hand it's like I hate the schlepping around and all the things that randomly happen like the hotel room forgot to book you or something (laughs) and you have to find another place and all these things that happen on the road the transportation breaks down or the plane gets (laughs) cancelled all these things that can happen and do um, and you still have to get out there and perform so I'm Definitely a working performer. You know, I, I'm always the person who I work really hard, you know, and I do long concerts. So I love the idea that I can just get dressed and walk into the next room. But there's this terrible void in not being able to have this beautiful rapport that starts to get very, very intensely real and you share your universe with hundreds or thousands, it depends, you know, on what you're doing, but you really, you get so much from the audience that the live stream, while I think I recreated a lot of it, I missed having that experience. You know, I've watched this in the industry, um... I mean, when Bruce Springsteen started out, he was a great performer, but he wasn't Bruce Springsteen yet. He became Bruce Springsteen. And he became Bruce Springsteen because the audience fed him, and he could become that, an entity. It's so true that for me, without the audience, I don't feel like I'm anything.
1: Melanie Safka, right there. I really want to thank her for being a part of our show today. Check her out at her website, which is in the show notes. And if you want to check out our show, www.it's only rock and roll podcast.com, you can find us at Facebook and on Instagram. Now, the show's running a little long, so until next time, thanks for tuning in.